The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a recurrent guest, uh, Larry Allen of Allen Federal. You can find Larry at Allen, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com, and you can find him on LinkedIn. Larry, welcome back to the show, man. Mark, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Always fun to have you. Um, uh, Tell people a little bit about what you do and then then, uh, fill in a little bit on uh, what you're going to be writing about next week. Mark Allen Federal is a strategic consulting firm that works with companies on various ways to improve their government business. If you've got a compliance issue, if you have a communications issue, uh, if you're not sure where your competitors are, if you need some market intelligence, Allen Federal can help your company put together a coherent plan of action to go and pursue federal business and make sure that you stay compliant doing it. I know compliance isn't everybody's first choice, but it really is the ounce of prevention versus the pound of cure. So that's and we've been doing that now, Mark, for eight and a half years. Ever since you left coalition, that's right. So <clears throat> one of the things I'm focusing on right now with my clients is secure supply chains. There's been a lot talked about that. It's not a new issue, but it's new in that the Department of Defense, especially, is getting very serious about making sure that its vendor community, including commercial businesses, Mark have secure supply chains. Simply put, if you're a commercial item or service supplier to the Department of Defense or Department of Homeland Security and you don't have a secure supply chain capability, you're at risk of losing that government business. And it's that serious. We've had uh, reports in Bloomberg government and elsewhere about multiple incursions, uh, Mark, in the cyber uh, arena, We have uh, the head of one of the major offices of the Office of uh, Defense and National Intelligence saying you all need to have secure supply chains, and he specifically flagged acquisition as a weak link in the secure supply chain field. That's all pretty clear to me that – Tell that little thing that he said, the the Google thing. Oh, one of the things (laughs) he said was that, look – If you're considering making an award to a company, you at least want to do a Google check to make sure that they're a legitimate firm. And that may seem like a Homer Simpson statement, Mark, but both you and I are aware that that's – he said it for a reason. You can't take it for granted that every contracting officer, either at a buying agency or a contract awarding agency like GSA, is going to do that simple due diligence there are companies that I've seen on parts of GSA schedules program that uh, have virtual offices, no real uh, physical location, and uh, it's a going question as to whether or not they're an actual valid business, and yet they're right there on a schedule and can sell you stuff and you can buy it, uh, and this is exactly what the uh, ODNI spokesman was talking about, the fact that we need to secure up our supply chains uh, because everything has the potential to be a cybersecurity intrusion. 
Right. And, and you know, to, to that point, you know, go back to the awarding or the writing, actually, of Soup 5. Joanne included a lot of uh, uh, supply chain security issues in there, the hoops you had to jump through to get onto Soup 5. That's exactly right. And that is something that gives people a little bit of an extra degree of assurance. Uh, there's constant vetting that goes on. You actually have to show that you uh, Somebody can come kick the tires if they want to, and that's a good thing. But it goes beyond kicking the tires. Whether or not your specific tires are concern or secure, Mark, the people that you use to put those tires together, or if we're going to continue the analogy, make the entire car, each step in that process has to be secure. So that's a lot to ask of a commercial company. Specifically, it's a lot to ask of any company, but if you're a defense contractor, this is the business you've chosen and you have to do that. Uh, If you're a commercial company, however, you better be prepared to take the same steps if you want to continue to be a supplier to the government. There you go. So so about 12 weeks or so ago, you and I recorded the first of what has so far, I think, been five shows – around the concept, big issues for small contractors. And this is actually going to be the, the wrap-up show. It doesn't mean we're not going to talk about small contractors here, but this this is really going to wrap up that series. So if you go to federalnewsradio.com or wherever you listen to the, uh, the show, uh, Podcast One or iTunes, you'll see the other five shows going back to, uh, I believe, January is when we started, Larry. Uh, but but this one in particular, uh, I've been watching the small business issues, but two things in particular set me off last week. So I did my newsletter this week. You can find my newsletter in any of the government market master groups on LinkedIn. There are several of them, the main one being government market master. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, what, what I, I said, the not-so-subtle erosion of set-aside. So Jason Miller's article – in uh, uh, it's on uh, uh, federalnewsnetwork.com. Just look up Jason. But uh, um, what does best in class really mean? And he's he's talking there not simply about what is the definition of best in in class. And Larry, you and I will pick apart a few of those for later on. But the 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 fact that that uh, the simple existence of best in class IDIQs and GWACs limits the number of opportunities for small companies, especially that are not on those vehicles. Mark, I think that's exactly right. When you're talking about best-in-class contracting, and we want to talk about it now right on the heels of a recent OMB memo that further defined uh, category management, which at its core is best-in-class contracting, you're really talking about reducing the number of IDIQ vehicles uh, in the government today. And just look specifically for a minute, Mark, at the IT marketplace, where we know that every year uh, 50% of a federal IT spend goes against IDIQ contracting vehicles. Well, if you're going to reduce the number of those vehicles, you are going to reduce the number of companies that sell on those vehicles And a large percentage of companies on those vehicles are small businesses, whether they're on a major contract themselves or whether they're on a small business companion contract. If those are small business companion contracts that don't have a best-in-class designation, they run the risk of not being renewed or dying on the vine 
and the small businesses that made significant investments in those contracts uh, are going to find those investments short-lived, and they're going to find that they have to totally recalibrate how they approach government business. And some of the mark we know from experience will be able to do that, but others are going to have to find an entirely different lake to fish in. Yeah, and and that uh, uh, we're we're going to get into this later on. But you 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 mentioned uh, uh, the the you brought up the category management thing. Um, I believe we both believe that is just a new name for the federal strategic sourcing initiative, <laughs> uh, which did a magnificent disservice to those companies on Schedule seventy five where it was first applied. Right. We saw on that schedule, which was for office supplies, I think hundreds of small businesses simply go out of business when GSA applied strategic sourcing uh, to it. And this really kind of gets at the core of what constitutes best-in-class contracting today, Mark. And, And you've hinted at it a couple of times that that definition we think is less than what it could be. And really what it amounts to today is low price. Well, uh, if you're a small business and you're having a tough time competing on price and you can't do the things that GSA wanted you to do on Schedule 75, then you go away. And in fact, thousands of jobs were lost. Hundreds of companies were forced to close their doors. And I think that's kind of a, a precursor of what we might see as GSA and OMB move forward with category management and best-in-class contracting. Now, on the one hand, no company has an inherent right to a government contract, Mark. On the other, the government has made promises, particularly to small businesses, that it's going to buy from small businesses. There are statutorily set goals for how much small business contracting is going to get done in a given year as well as preferences for small businesses on a variety of subspecies like veteran-owned and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses. So if you're changing the rules in the middle of the game and you are uh, doing things that uh, are not at all consistent with each other, small businesses can be forgiven for wondering which side the government's really on. Well, you know, I, I, we'll wrap up this segment with a couple of stats from uh, from Schedule 75. So prior to applying FSSI 275, there were approximately 500 or so companies on the schedule. When FSSI was applied, it was winnowed down to 20 or thereabouts, including two large, and GSA was proud to announce 18, 19 smalls. Um, prior to the award, according to the uh, uh, schedule sales query, about 55 to 60 percent of the business went to uh, Office Depot and Staples. After it was supplied, it is now about 90 percent of that business going to Office Depot and Staples. So the, the, the percentage going to small business has radically dropped, and that that's uh, – that's scary for smalls because they can't offer the same prices that Office Depot and Staples offer. That's that's exactly right. And you've compound this out across uh, government contracting when you're looking at professional services, IT, specialty equipment, or anything else, Mark. 
and it's clear that small businesses today are facing some challenges when doing business in the federal market. Okay. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Back with Larry to continue talking about big issues facing small contractors. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Again, you can find Larry at Allen, A L L E N, federal.com, all one word. Uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find us both on LinkedIn. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. But let, let's let's not let go of this uh, best in class, this bit, uh, this cheap writing <laughs> utensil. Um, they're they're effective, but you know, <laughs> they blot um, sometimes. Um, anyway, uh, best in class. What does it mean? Uh, from I mean, you've been a contracts guy. Uh, for a long time in the in the coalition <laughs> and on the hill so right. what what is this beast well mark this is kind of one of the real core issues is who gets to decide what the term best in class means right now it's really the office of management and budget that decides what BIC contracting is and unfortunately i think the easiest way to define it is which contracts offer the lowest price and to give OMB credit, also the greatest ability of spend analysis. Uh, so it's both. But uh, what they're really interested in is lower pricing. And we all want the government to get good prices, Mark, but there really ought to be other criteria for what constitutes best in class. It's not really merely the lowest price. It should be price plus service factors plus the moving at the speed of need plus having the features on – uh, the contracts that federal buyers actually want to buy and, and have a need for. So it could be price, but other things as well as price. Office management and budget, as I alluded to in the first segment, had an opportunity when it updated its category management policy to redefine best-in-class contract to make it more of a representative term. For whatever reason, Mark, they declined to do that. So we're left with a, I think, overly narrowly defined class of what constitutes best in class, and you could really almost substitute low price for best in class and come up with the same thing. I am one of those people who I think, you know, if you're talking about this, what you're really talking about is professional enterprise technology contracts or pet contracts. Everybody has their own pet contracts, Mark. Right. Well, they should. And I think what OMB says is we want people to buy off the, our pet contracts and uh, not others. Right. Well, you and I both coach large, mediums, and smalls, mostly mediums and smalls. And the first thing, you know, probably or one of the early things on both of our agendas is if you're going to target specific agencies, let's let's take a dive into FPDS or Bloomberg or GovWin or whatever we use and see where that agency buys their stuff. Well, that's it's a big big government out there, multiple missions, multiple missions, Mark, even within agencies. And simply put, there really is not going to be a best in class uh, contract vehicle that meets all of the needs for those many diverse missions. There are going to be 
contracts that are better suited for specific missions than others. And I'm a big believer in limiting contract proliferation. On the other hand, I'm not a big believer in saying to federal buyers, thou shalt buy only from these contracts that we have predetermined to be best. Right. That's a recipe for failure. Uh, history is not on the side of central organizations mandating that government buyers buy only from a passel of identified contracts. Uh, history has shown repeatedly, Mark, that the minute that happens, that buyers in remote locations go out of their way to show that they can do it better, faster, and cheaper than the central organization's ordained contract methods. Uh, I'm a big believer in thou should, using carrot approach, uh, maybe a little bit of a stick if you've got a laggard, but uh, making it a mandate uh, basically shifts the balance of power over into a place where it has the opposite of the intended effect. Yeah, and, and you, you've been pushing that pricing thing. So uh, uh, is category management an umbrella not simply for FSSI but also LPTA? Well, I think we're getting pretty close to that. I think there's a lot of concern uh, in industry anyway that uh, big contracting may be uh, first cousin or closer to LPTA, sibling of LPTA. Uh, And in terms of strategic sourcing, I think, look, what was the idea behind the original federal strategic sourcing initiative? Well, it was to drive down prices and to develop – identified, recognized central contract methods through which the government would spend. Well, that sounds a lot like category management, what OMB is trying to achieve today uh, via a different name. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, they hopefully have learned is that you can achieve a lot of good outcomes with directives and encouragement, but again, mandates push you over into another area. And also, if you mandate something, you're not really accounting for technological change. We talked earlier, Mark, about the Schedule 75 office supply contract. Well, right now, GSA is busy trying to rehabilitate that contract over a series of mistakes, some of which we've talked about today already. They're resurrecting the dead? Are they doing untoward uh, unnatural things? Well, I think that whether or not they're unnatural, I'm not sure how successful they're going to be. Why is that? Well, it's because technology has changed. You now have uh, Amazon and others routinely selling to federal agencies, and they don't have contracts. Uh, They may have some memorandums of agreement and memorandums of understanding. Uh, You have uh, companies that have their own websites, own e-commerce platforms that are actively marketing those to uh, federal buyers. Uh, And you have the ability of the government to make those buys with purchase cards. Uh, Look, the technology has now shifted this marketplace into a way of more efficient buying than you can get through a schedule. Uh, So if you're, but if you were locked in to schedule solution, that's now, I think, becoming an obsolete solution for office supplies, Um, not anything else, but for office supplies. So if that, but if that was your best in class, if that was, was what OMB was mandating, Federal agencies would be missing out on the technological innovation that could lead to better outcomes. 
I'm glad we're talking about this. It reminds me that I'm out of paper for my printer. So <laughs> I got to stop on the way back to Columbia. Um, <laughs> and, and I, uh, maybe I'll just go to Amazon and buy it. <laughs> um, but but you know the, so uh, uh, category management we've we've changed the name kept the verbiage and maybe rearranged it a little bit so it doesn't look quite the same so it doesn't look like you're plagiarizing the paper you wrote three years ago or five <laughs> years ago um, so your graduate professor won't uh, or in this case undergraduate professor won't uh, won't penalize you for for rehashing an old idea. Right, but they they did add, and I want to add, make this clear, they did add one new element to uh, category management, Mark, in the recent change, which is setting up a requirement for agencies to uh, tell OMB what they're spending, doing spend analysis, and that would all be populated into a prices paid database. We've heard this before. We've heard it with GSA's uh, transactional data reporting pilot. Uh, and here we are now on a much larger scale where uh, there would be a requirement to submit prices paid to now a government-wide database that GSA might manage, but it would be under OMB direction. The idea being that that would be a comparison tool for uh, buyers to make smart buying decisions. And I'm not sure that uh, that will work either. I don't think it was going to work for TDR, Mark, and I don't think it's going to work for category management. Government just does not buy commodities that much, and it buys complex services a lot. And when you're buying complex services, prices paid databases aren't going to provide you with very useful information. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what um, – you know. I've been, been doing a tremendous amount of reading on the – History of strategy as it applied is it applied to business, and it actually didn't start until the '60s. But one one of the things that that comes to the fore there, and it, it's brought up very well in a book called The Lords of Strategy, which tracks the history of strategy as a business tool over the last four decades. And and that is that you know no two of these offerings are the same. So the early uh, uh, strategy structures were you know pretty good for their <clears throat> 60s, 70s, became radically outdated by the mid-70s, late-70s, were replaced, everything is but, – but none of – it's apples and oranges. So I'm technically a management consultant. That's what I do for a living, but I consult in a very narrow niche. I'm not going to – you know, if, if they lump McKinsey in with me <laughs> in, in a category or, you know, Boston Consulting Group or Bain & Company, you know, um, you know – their prices are going to have to drop precipitously to meet mine, um, and and the results will be radically different. <laughs> right, right, and it's the same thing in the government market. Uh, we're buying complex services, even in the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense is a net buyer of services, not actually planes, guns, and bombs, and not everybody realizes that, Mark. But when you're doing those types of things – uh, each one is priced differently. There are going to be different things that individual customers value uh, over each other, and that's perfectly fine. And again, we want the government to get the best mission-oriented results from the acquisitions that they conduct. Uh, populating prices paid information 
it's going to be very difficult to strip it down uh, in the first place because of how these things are bought and sold. But it's also going to lead to lots of false analogies. And the one that you – the example you gave is a very good one. The services Mark Amtower provides are great services and he's second to none in the federal market for what he does. But these are just – that is his narrow bandwidth of operation. And when you get to government contracting officers who may not fully understand the world of management consulting in this analogy, uh, there's going to be a temptation to say that everybody has to offer the rates that Mark Amtower offers and no real understanding for the differentiation of what Bain or McKinsey or some of the others might do that justifies differences in pricing. I think that the net net of a prices paid database, Mark, is going to make government acquisition uh, more burdensome, increase suspicion uh, between government and industry, lead to a lot of misinformation uh, that will ultimately not be a net positive for government acquisition. Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Uh, when we come back, we're going to wrap up on, on category management with a couple of examples and, and migrate to other issues facing small businesses. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen today, and we're talking uh, about, again, uh, big issues facing small contractors uh, in particular, category management and related issues to smalls seemingly squeezing out um, uh, uh, com- potential competitors who don't have direct access to any of these IDIQs or, or GWACs that are listed best in class. And I think there's 16. And, and Larry, um, the, the category management thing sort of uh, uh, shrunk down the universe to 10 government-wide categories. Um, what uh, um, Does this make sense, first of all? Well, I think, Mark, it makes sense at the time that it was put into place. And to give OMB some credit, you have to start somewhere uh, and categorizing spend in an attempt to identify where the government does its spending uh, is probably a, a good thing at a certain level. Uh so you know, they get kudos for that and, and, and to the extent that you're going to gather some information uh, that can help you make smarter uh, not just buying decisions but smarter government management decisions, this could be a good thing. On the other hand, uh, categories don't – the government market and the commercial market mark aren't static. They develop and sometimes they can evolve much faster than our ability to classify things – evolves. You know, look at, for example, one of the 10 categories here is medical. And medical includes some of the things that we might imagine that are discrete drugs and pharmaceuticals, but it also includes things like medical equipment, accessories. Well, I think a lot of that, a lot of those medical accessories and equipment, Mark, have substantial IT components to yep. them. Yep. So right away... Telemedicine's how, IT right, component. Right. Is... is, is are you getting a healthcare solution or are you getting an IT solution that helps you do remote diagnostics or remote doctor visits? Uh, you could put it in either bucket. 
So, and I imagine people will put it in, in either bucket. Just to use a more concrete example, I work with companies in the telecommunications field, which of course touches right up on the IT field. And depending on the agency you go to, you want to talk about a telecommunications solution with the CIO, which definitely puts it right into IT, or you want to talk about it with somebody who is definitely not the CIO, who is more of a telecom or communications program manager, and they may only have a tangential relationship with their CIO. So uh, that's another example of how uh, a valid attempt to uh, discern where the government's spending by category can lead to imperfect outcomes just by the nature of the fact that things do continue to evolve and what one person might call a solution that falls under one category, somebody else would categorize in a different manner. Yeah, and uh, agreed. And another example might be, you know, the human capital and the professional services. So where does training fall under? You know, when when HCATs, and we'll get there in a minute, uh, came out, I suggested to my clients that they avoid it because the 2% fee kept the agencies <laughs> from buying from it. Um, so, and, and for the first couple of years of HCATs, that was very, very accurate. So, uh, they've dropped the fee, but where, where does the training fall under professional services or under human capital? So, um, you know, a number of companies opted for the professional services category. Some in the IT training arena opted for 70, but still there's an overlap there. Uh, considerable overlap. And you have companies... Uh, active on both sides, Mark. You have companies that are active on the human capital HCATS contract as well as having uh, professional service schedules or even an OASIS uh, contract, all of which have the ability to provide professional training services of some sort or another and in many cases essentially the same type of training that you can get across all of the platforms. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's kind of uh, you know, I, I like you. I think the application of this discipline to the procurement process was a good move, but initially they had nineteen spend categories, <laughs> and I think when they compressed it down to ten, they may have been doing square peg round hole. But I want to focus on HCATS for a second. That that two percent uh, uh, funding fee for HCAT made it the highest of any IDIQ out there and uh, literally, you know, drove agencies away. No question about it. And I think some of that, Mark, was because this program has been co-managed by GSA and the Office of Personnel Management, and each government agency needed to get some cost recovery for its efforts in co-managing the program. But the reality was that uh, that fee was more than double uh, the GSA schedules fee. And you and I both know that people take shots at the schedules, uh, particularly Joanne Wojtek at Soup, for the schedules fee being higher than some people think it ought to be. So it should be no surprise that a 2% fee uh, really uh, diminished the usefulness of the HCATS contract. My understanding now is that with some of the consolidation between OPM and GSA, that that fee has now been rolled back to the traditional schedules, 0.75%. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure what that's done for uh, driving sales through HCATs. It takes a while for the reality to catch up with the perception, Mark, in this case. So if the perception about the fee was still out there, uh, it would take contractors really ultimately pushing the uh, message to update their buyers on the fact that they can now buy at a reduced overhead rate from but, this contract. Let, let, let's talk about IT training. If you had a preference for a particular vendor on on the IT training and and it wasn't through it was through seventy, not through HCATS, why would you switch? If you're an agency, you have a vehicle in place, you may have a BPA in place. Right. And I don't think that you would. If you've got a contract method that's ongoing and that's working for you, I think you'd probably be inclined to stick with it. Uh, I think that there, you've got plenty of training opportunities on the professional services contract. Look, I've, I've done some analysis on this probably about a year ago, Mark. But what I found was that the HCATS business was very, very small in comparison to the amount of business going through the similarly situated professional services schedule. That's not the entire PSS. Everybody knows that that's much larger in scope. Sure. But it was the similarly situated types of services that go through that contract. And yet uh, GSA and OPM were and still are investing a considerable amount of personnel resources in this contract. Um, My hope is that it will now be an efficient, effective way of buying uh, these types of services. But as you point out, if there are existing solutions that are already working, it's going to have to be net new business that HCATS uh, and their contractors picks off from competing contract vehicles. Right. And and uh, a little further on that, you know, Alliant just faced a protest from a lot of companies. Initially, it was one, and then all of a sudden, the news the next day was like 30, 40 companies um, so Alliance Small Business is on hold yet again uh, um, for, you know, uh, not not dissimilar issues. You know, we're, we're being left off this bus and, you know, when this – or train and when this train leaves the station, if you're still in the station, you're SOL. Right. And ironically, this time around, Mark, this round of protests led GSA to pull back awards – from a fairly substantial number of small businesses that had in, or so, yeah. right that had initially been awarded a an alliant two contract, so now they're going to have to go back and redo things. They're going to have to recalibrate their RFP, recalibrate their scoring system, which I think is at the core of the protests here, and then uh, reaward to companies according to the new criteria. That inevitably will touch off its own round of protests. So it'll be a little while before we get this train moving out of the station. Yeah, but, you know, there there was a precedent here where a protest occurred and the program manager simply took the protesters, appended them to the vehicle, and moved on. Award complete. And that was Soup 5. Right. And that was a tried and true uh, way to move forward. Soup did it, and frankly, GSA did it before with earlier iterations of Alliant, uh, for sure. And I can't recall Oasis, but maybe uh, one of the ways to get uh, rid of protests is to just add the people to the contract and let the as long as they fall within right, let the chips fall where yeah. they may in terms of customer use, and uh, we're good to go. GSA kind of stopped doing that, Mark with uh, Oasis and with Alliant 2. Uh, 
you can't come up with a protest-proof solicitation, but what the agency's aim was was coming up with a successful protest-proof solicitation, which up till this point they had largely done on the Alliant 2 and Oasis programs. But this time around, uh, Judge anyway found that the uh, award criteria was not consistent with what GSA said it was supposed to be, and now we have the situation where the program is uh, idling as GSA figures out how to uh, right the ship and award uh, contracts to companies that uh, meet the revised criteria and then be able to move move ahead. Move forward. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. We're going to wrap up our discussion on big issues facing small contractors after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Um, we're, uh, I'm, we're we're discussing. Larry and I are discussing big issues facing small contractors, and one of the things we left off, Larry was the uh, Section 809 panel. Briefly tell people what they resolved. Well, Mark, this was the DOD acquisition reform panel that was making recommendations to Congress on ways to streamline DOD's acquisition uh, methods. And one of the things they hit on was to eliminate for DOD acquisitions the 23% small business prime contracting goal that now exists for all government agencies. And in place of DOD having to award 23% of its contracts to small businesses, the 809 panel recommended a 5% bid offset to give small businesses the ability to compete on unrestricted acquisitions with larger businesses. So if you're a small <laughs> business, you would uh, be able to have a an offer that was up to 5% more than that of a large business competitor uh, instead of having the set aside. Uh, needless to say, this has gotten a lot of people in the small business community very concerned. Uh, a 5% uh, markup or 5% offset, as, as you acknowledged essentially, Mark, uh, is not very much. Uh, and People like uh, oh, and it's an opportunity. It's not a guarantee, right? And people like our colleague Steve Coprince uh, have written on this, and he says quite rightly, I think that when you're a small business or competing against a Microsoft for a staffing or software development project, five uh, percent doesn't mean much, if anything, and. Yeah. Uh, puts you as a small business at a competitive disadvantage. The only good news I can say about this, Mark, is that I find this specific Section 809 panel recommendation to be unlikely <laughs> to be acted on by Congress, uh, that, to say the least. That would be good, but I, I, right. I do think that small businesses should uh, should be contacting their respective Congress people on this. Uh, Steve's people wrote in his uh, his blog is smallgovcon.com, and there are there's a couple of posts on 809 in there that I suggest you read. But if you're a small business, you should be reading Steve's uh, blog, Coprince Law blog regularly. Uh, one other issue before we uh, we we wrap up, and that was. Uh, you know, all of these issues are are horrible for smalls, but simply getting a certification as a small is is like you know a, a maze. 
Well, it's become more difficult. It's become more difficult for a variety of reasons. Uh, essentially, Mark, if you're seeking to certify yourself as a small business in the government market today, you really have to be prepared to open your kimono. You have to be able to show not just your corporate finances, but in many cases, your personal finances, your family finances. Not everybody's very comfortable with that. And there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> I can for, think of somebody that's not. Right. There, there are a lot of reasons for why uh, government uh, – Certifiers are looking for that information, the biggest one being there are a lot of companies that claim to be small that aren't. Uh, but the fact is that if you or are – Woman-owned and aren't. Woman-owned and aren't or veteran-owned but aren't. Uh, but the fact is if you are a legitimate small business, you are now having to play by these rules, which can be uh, substantial, time-consuming, and invasive. Yeah, and and you know, just take the eight A process. I've I've known uh, companies have taken well over a year to be to go through the entire vetting process and to be awarded the eight A status. And if they're an IT company, then they have to wait for the next iteration of Stars to <laughs> uh, to be open so they can get on Stars. It's not an automatic uh, uh, gimme, and that's that's some a, a very good vehicle for eight A IT contractors. It is. It's one that uh, – it's a GSA success story. It's not a new program, but the fact that it keeps going indicates that it's definitely uh, serving a need. I think one piece of advice I would offer to small business listeners is that the thing that trips up a lot of small businesses these days, Mark, is affiliation. Affiliation with some other business. So if you're sharing, let's say, back office accounting and HR services – with another company, uh, the SBA is going to look at that to say you're affiliated with those companies. And if the, and if that other company is not small, then you're not going to be considered small either. Or if collectively the two companies together, by virtue of the fact that they have a common back office nexus, aren't small, then uh, they may each individually be small, but if you come together – and your common nexus makes you other than small, that is what the classification is for both companies. So my my piece of advice is it's good to have partners. Everybody wants to have partners. Everybody needs, particularly new businesses, need to have a source of financing and funding to get themselves up and running. That's great. But make sure when you're doing that that you are not giving yourself an affiliation with a business that will jeopardize your small business size status. Right. And, and if you're entering the government market for the first time, make sure you understand how long those certifications can take, depending on which they are. How long can they take? And then once you get them, particularly in things like 8A, how long they last, you'd be surprised at how quickly that time does run. Nine years runs fast, man. <laughs> you know, speaking of nine years, you're uh, you're at uh, nine years on Allen Federal. Pretty close to it yeah. and uh, gaining steam all the time. Okay. Uh, Larry, I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap up here. I do a coaching program for solopreneurs, primarily for consultants to help them stand out. You, you are in business now for nine years. You have significant name recognition in the market and probably a fair number of connections on LinkedIn. But for the next three months or so, 
I'm going to be coaching you on leveraging particularly LinkedIn content marketing and building out that subject matter expert platform that you already have in place. And the reason we're going to do this, we're going to do it kind of publicly. Larry's going to be back once a month to discuss progress amongst other things. So we'll take five minutes at the end of the show to to discuss this. But I, I want to show people how with simple changes in how you conduct business, particularly as a solopreneur, you can really gain significant bandwidth. You can build visibility. You can build that subject matter expert platform, and you can start to build business uh, through social networking like LinkedIn uh, and and make LinkedIn work for you uh, uh, 24-7, 365 while you sleep, while you're on vacation, but just to have it resonate across the market. So thank you for agreeing to do that with me. I'm looking forward to it. It should be fun. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts for uh, for people listening in? Mark, my final thought as we put this together is that government business should be starting to heat up right about now, at least in terms of RFIs or RFQs. Uh, we're entering, uh, we're not in busy season, but we're getting closer to it. Yeah, and we are. your federal business development operation should be seeing an uptick in customer interest. You should be out right now attending industry days and looking for those RFIs and RFQs. And if you're not seeing them, it's time to make some phone calls, get out on the street and start meeting with customers. Cool. Uh, My guest has been Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Again, you can find Larry at Allen, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com. You can find him on LinkedIn. I suggest you do both. Uh, And as I just implied, this is not my day job. I not only have a... uh, program for solopreneurs. I have a year-long program for small businesses, small as defined by the Small Business Administration, regardless of which category. Uh, Both programs have provided my clients with with significant growth potential. And uh, if you're interested, drop me a line, markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 